This is the Commercial Property Investing Explained Series, brought to you by Steve Polisi. Find out how commercial property really works and start investing like the pros. Your education starts now. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investing Explained Series. I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and I'm here with my man, Steve Polisi. How are you, mate? I'm good, man. We're famous, did you know? <laughs> I don't know about famous, but uh, there's a, a few uh, stories of people getting recognized around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, was, I was out the other day so for, like filming some social media stuff and I was telling the social media guy, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like an A-list celebrity now in the small real estate world. I'm like, I've been out three times last week and being recognized. And then literally, as I said it, a guy walked past and he's like, you're Steve Polisi. I love your podcast with Andrew Bean. That's funny, man. I had a similar situation where I was calling a camera surveillance camera company to upgrade the surveillance on my self-storage facility. And the guy's like, hang on, I know your voice. Are you Andrew Bean? <laughs> Are you from that podcast? <laughs> so yeah, it's going well. It's going good. Going to have to start charging more for our services now that we're the A-list to celebrities. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so Steve, we actually won a very, very special award just recently. Do you want to tell the listeners exactly what it was? Yeah, so the Australian Financial Review actually awarded us with the fastest growing property company in Australia, which is completely baffling to me considering I started the business from the UK as a one-man band and now we're <laughs> 15 plus employees. But I put it down to actually the employees that we have because everyone in our team, like we've got valuers, we've got solicitors, we've got engineers, like we're all property lovers with like really good experience and big portfolios ourselves as well. So it's all the team. It's not me. I was just gallivanting around Europe, but we've definitely got the best team in the business. 100%. And we've, uh, we've actually celebrating that team by bringing one of the team members on today. So we have a very, very special guest today. She's a huge integral part of our buyers agency on the property strategy side and acquisition team. Welcome to the podcast, Anita Yao. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. You are very, very welcome. So can you just give like the listeners a bit of a background about what you do at Polisi Property and like your background before you're working in the buyer's agency? Yeah, sure. So I started out as a conveyancing lawyer, so property law. I did that for two, three years. What happened was my dad, he's always been really interested in property and what he would do is just acquire properties and then convert it into cafes and restaurants. And then I would sort of help him on the side from a legal point of view. And I got really into um, construction law, helping with him with constructing the deals and contracts, that sort of thing. Did that for 15 years. And then because of my interest in dealing with my family's portfolio, dad's portfolio grew from one to two to a bigger portfolio. And then I thought I'd reach out to Steve a little bit more than a year ago. And now I'm on the acquisitions team and police property mainly dealing with acquiring East Coast properties for clients. And absolutely crushing it, mind you. Yeah, she's downplaying, Andrew. So she's managed to father a very <laughs> large commercial portfolio by herself, which we normally don't recommend people doing because there is so much to do. But Anita, from a background of being like a law background and conveyancing, she obviously did manage it really well. And that's what obviously piqued my interest in her when she kind of applied for a job was just like, you're doing like three people's jobs. Like you're very experienced and you've seen... And retail, as we're going to discuss today, is an interesting one. There's obviously some risks with it, but then some huge advantages like Anita's father has done turning into the cafes and restaurants around. Yeah, for the people who don't know Anita, she actually is a trained solicitor. 
she works on our team reading like contracts. Like how good is that to have someone like that on your staff and she doesn't actually do our like legal contracts, but she has all of the knowledge and all of the skills to actually do it. That's like invaluable. That's really unusual. Anita, did you find it hard to go from what we call like a, a white collar type professional role into like a buyer's agency? Because we're, we're obviously a diverse bunch at Policy Property. We've got like a valuer, a couple engineers, person who manage different gyms. Like we're quite diverse because it is one of those weird industries where you don't want to hire sales agents because their whole job is sugarcoating things to make it look really good. We're the opposite. We try to make properties look really, really bad to get the best price. Yeah. No, I think it was super helpful actually having that property and construction law background because our job was mainly to look out for problems in in properties and help developers or owners. And for me, it's just been pretty seamless going into the buyer's agency world. It's definitely a lot more fun because for some of the new guys who are in real estate looking at a contract or lease, it could take them a couple of months to pick up, whereas for me, it's nothing. I'm just sort of looking out for the best deals for our clients. So, no, it's been really fun. It's definitely a lot more lighthearted. People come to you with the whole buyer's agency space. People come to you when they're actually happy, whereas in law, they come to you when not so happy, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the good thing exactly. is we're not limited to any types of properties. So, like, if someone doesn't like what we send them, and I've seen you do this all the time, we ask them, we say, well, what didn't you like about this property? So we can have an open, honest chat about it and then readjust the search because when it comes down to it, it's their money, it's their risk. So like they're taking it on. Our job is just to make sure they've got all the information so they make an informed decision. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty black and white and being a lawyer and similar to you, Steve, engineer, like I'm quite risk adverse. So I'm always, I'm actually doing it in the reverse. I'm looking at what problems are there in this property. And then I kind of look at some of the benefits and reverse engineer it that way before I speak to the buyer about it. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking a bit about maybe like a a contrarian view of investing in commercial property. We're going to actually be talking about the two sectors that are definitely perceived right now as carrying way more risk. We all know that industrial sector has been widely the most popular sector in commercial property for a very long time, but that's actually presented some really, really interesting opportunities in other sectors, right, Steve? Yeah, exactly right, Angela, because everyone, the perceived notion that retail and office is really risky since COVID, which has some basis, but then there's also opportunity then. We'll talk about this in this podcast, like just the yields, you can get some very attractive yields and we will go through at the end, like some of the policy property deals we've been through and what Anita's seen on the ground and kind of give a bit of a run around the grounds and the hotspots around Australia of where to look for retail and office. But there's some big opportunities at the moment and any investing you do do, you shouldn't be focused on the next two or three years anyway. You should be looking at opportunities. Like if I'm going to own this for 20 years, how's it going to look in 10 years time, 15 years, 20 years time? And just the difference in yields makes it really attractive. If you go pick up a 7 8% net yielding office space versus let's say a Sydney industrial at 4%, it could remain vacant 50% of the time and you'll still end up with the same amount of net rent as the Sydney one. So when you look at it like that, there actually is some good opportunities. Yeah, 100%. And what I've found with like the office and and retail sector now is it's very much a negotiation. It's not like this is the price, take it or leave it, because they don't have the amount of buyers just waiting in line to pay that price. 
with industrial, like it's still very much a tight sector. Actually, like I was talking to a lady at a barbecue the other day and I said I was in commercial property and she's like, oh, commercial property is doing really bad, isn't it? And I'm like, well, there are different sectors. There are different specific mm. sectors. So industrial has done really well. It's booming. But there are other sectors that are a little bit down. So it's just uh, educating the masses, I guess. Yeah. And we've said this on other podcasts, commercial property gets, gets lumped in with one. Like literally people yeah. go, oh, don't buy commercial. I saw that the cafe closed down next door to me and it's been vacant for years. Cool. Don't go out and buy a cafe. And it's the same thing. Like there's plenty of residential properties in mining towns that are going down in value, but I don't say don't buy inner West Sydney. Like it's completely different. I want to make it clear, like retail and office space are completely different assets. The only thing they have in common is people attend to them. That's it. The growth drivers are different. The vacancies are different. What you can do with them, the value add opportunities are different. The only common thing is it's got the name property. It shouldn't even be commercial property. It should be residential, industrial, office space, retail, all completely different sectors. Let's let's just get rid of the word commercial completely. (laughs) Learning about how commercial property really works has never been easier with so many great resources around like this podcast and Steve's book. And he's giving it away for free if you use discount code podcast on his website. So go to www.policyproperty.com. Use discount code podcast to get the book free. All you have to pay for is shipping. What a great deal. All right, mate. So you can just explain exactly like why retail and office properties are currently at a low point in the property cycle. Yeah, so the main thing is the preconceived notion from COVID. So obviously the working from home culture has brought vacancy rates up on office space and it's made a lot of the data kind of skewed for retail because like your suburban like shop obviously during COVID had some bad numbers because there was rental incentives, the yields kind of crashed a little bit. However, we're past that now. So we're actually starting to see some good trends in retail. Um, The other thing which I'll talk about soon is most of the big data is for big properties. They're the Westfields and things like that. Like it's not just a standard like medical center in suburbia. It's like Westfield spending. So when people say, oh, retail spending's down, they're talking about like going into a Westfield. It's a completely different asset to what 99% of people actually buy. So you've got to take it with a grain of salt. But do you want me to go through some of the kind of the big data right now? Yeah, sure. That sounds good. I'm going to share my screen so I can go through numbers so any of those people watching on the socials or on our YouTube channel can kind of see. But there actually has been some quite interesting data. All right, so I've opened up the most recent CBRE reports for retail and office. Some other good ones for the listeners. Uh, Knight Frank do some good reports. Savills and Burgess Rawson is another one I read. I just want to make note that this is big data. So like I said, it's looking at a lot of the times it's like 10,000 plus square meters and stuff like that. But it's good for getting an idea of trends. So I'll just pull up the office one for the Q2 2023 and a bit of a run around the ground. So general vacancy rates at 12.8% for office around Australia. Sydney's gone up from 10 to 11.5%. Melbourne from 13 to 15%. This is the interesting one because this is where we buy quite a lot of office. Brisbane's actually come down from 14% to 11%. So that's quite strong. Adelaide's gone up to 17%. And Perth's at 15% and Canberra's about the same at 8%. Obviously, Canberra is pretty partly held because it's mostly government. So the governments are yeah. paying, still paying the rents and things thing there. But 
the main thing that drives the vacancy, especially in office space, is new stock. So when COVID hit and we had all the developers half built their office towers, that's hitting the markets. And that's why Adelaide and Sydney were hit quite hard. But now that that's kind of cleared up and there's less stock coming on the markets, they should tighten. But I want to make it put it in perspective for people. Five years ago, industrial vacancy rates are at like 7 8%. So when you're buying like 11% in Brisbane, it's not necessarily like the end of the world. It's not like it's going to be vacant all the time. We're talking a few years vacancies at most. And I know that scares people, but like I mentioned before, we're also getting much better yield from it. So some good opportunities in office space, especially if you're a good tenant. And Anita will give us a bit of a run around the grounds for what the actual real investors get. But I'll quickly jump across to retail. And what interested me about retail is retail trade growth was actually up 19.2% on last year. So we actually have seen it come back. So when people say retail spending down, it's not. But I'll just give you a quick run around the grounds as well. The yields for CBD, and this is what most people aren't buying because there's less foot traffic, are actually lower than the shopping centers in regional areas. So we're looking at around, most capital C's were around 5% besides AACT for CBD retail. However, the large format retail, so for those who don't know what large format retail is, that's like the, you know, the industrial kind of retail shop fronts, the ones where you have like, I don't know, Furniture King and there's like the little furniture villages and all those and the car dealers and things like that. So those kind of more industrial sized retail, they're obviously really strong, good opportunities. And we buy quite a lot of those because they double up as industrial and retail. But around the grounds, you're looking at 5.3 up to around 6% as a base. And this is for like the big stuff. So if you're buying the smaller stuff, you can get 65 to 8% net yields there. So some good opportunities for around Australia. But again, you just got to know what you're doing. Yeah, awesome. And what we'll actually do, guys, at the end, we'll show you some markets that are actually lower and safer um, to invest in for office and retail. So hang around to the very end to check that out. But what I actually really want to know, actually what I want and needed to share with the audience is what type of retail properties right now are considered low risk in today's market and why? Yeah, some of the retail and office types of properties that we're looking at right now is if it's close to a train station along the main street, there's offices that we buy that's within the industrial complex type of spaces. So say if there's like six units that's industrial, there might be one of them that might be just for office use and that you've got a lot of like sort of tradies and and construction types who rent out those properties and they would actually need a head office and so they more than likely than not be renting out those offices in that industrial complex. The way that I like to describe this to when I'm speaking to clients on the phone is the retail space right now that is very, very low risk is your destination type retail. It's the retail that you have to go to to get the service. So it's your your IGA, like your supermarket, your pizza shop, your hairdresser, your nail salon, something that cannot be outsourced to online. So you have to go to the location to get the service. Otherwise, you cannot get the service. You cannot get a haircut online. So that's the type of retail that, in my view, is by far the safest retail. So if you're buying a neighborhood retail like center and it has all of those types of retail, you don't want to be buying something like a dress shop Dress shop can be very, very easily outsourced online. I don't know how dress shops make money, to tell you the truth. Like, you know, those ones in like, you know, in the city in, in Sydney where it's like they're paying, they're paying huge rent and they couldn't be selling that many dresses. 
just crazy. But anything that has a destination type feel where you have to go to it is really, really good right now. What do you reckon, Steve? Yeah, and that, that's most of suburban retail strips. When people say, yeah. oh, retail spending down, yes, that's why like Westfields might have less people through it. And that might be the case for those. But 99% of people aren't buying the Westfields. They're buying the local shop. Like I said, the hair salons, the massage parlors, the medical centers, the ones where you need face-to-face contact, and they won't go anywhere. You'll always need it. So if you can look to the fundamentals and go, okay, are they building any competing retail in the next five, 10 years? So you can talk mm. to town planners and find that out. And the population's growing. That's going to be a good, like, safe, long-term one. And some of the stuff we buy, there's no vacancies there, and there hasn't been a vacancy for five, 10 years. So that's a really strongly held area. What I want to point out, though, is the reason people stay away from retail is because you can't just really pick an area. Like industrial, we might say, oh, look, we're going to focus on Southeast Queensland, for instance, and look for a good industrial. And then once you find one, there's still a lot of due diligence to do, but the high level's a bit quicker because you can go, okay, what other warehouses have sold recently and what's online at the moment? But retail, like in a random retail strip, you'll know nothing about that suburb. You'll find it and go, okay, what the hell am I buying here? And that's where you have to dig deeper and actually talk to like the tenants and look at foot traffic and road traffic. So it's harder. And this is what maybe scares people away. There's more initial work, but there's more rewards there if you get a better yield. And I think we're not also just talking about any random retail shop anywhere. It has to be specifically right and has the most foot traffic. Like it has to have very, very good foot traffic for it to be worthwhile and buying. Not all retail is made the same as, you know, Steve and I have spoken about before. You might have a grid of shops like with streets and the ones at the very, very main road can be very, very valuable. The rate per square meter could be, say, even up to $1,000 for a retail square rate per square meter. But then one street back where no one goes, that rate per square meter could be literally like half the price or even a quarter of the price because there's absolutely no foot traffic. It's the perceived foot traffic to be able to make sales in your business, which is really important. What do you reckon, Anita? Yeah, I think that generally, yes, we do focus on foot traffic, but there are some retail shops that we're looking at that where you just have to know the area. There isn't really this one-stop shop. There are some types of retail shops, showrooms, where you specifically go to that area because you want to get your hair done, you want to go to those beauty parlours, you want to go to that specific cafe or chiropractor or medical centre. So you will probably most likely drive there and park there to get that service. So, yes, I would say 50%, you know, we'll look at foot traffic, but we also look at what are those hot spots that has a lot of retail business activity. There are nuances as well. So like, for instance, you said about car parking, sometimes it's just easier just to go to the local like one down the road than battling a car park or battling like one lane of traffic in like high peak hour just to go get a, a thing of milk. So it's also like there's little nuances around retail property that data and statistics don't actually tell you. It's actually boots on the ground, like understanding of the traffic flow and how it actually feels as well. There's different types of retail as well. So like we buy a lot of showroom retail. So it's like those industrial complexes that are like car yards and like furniture villages and stuff like that. That's where people go specifically for it. And that's all it is. And on the whole, it actually looks like an industrial complex because it sort of is, Mm. but they're actually all retail shops. And that's probably the thing to check with part of DD as well. A lot of people get caught out on this is if it's considered retail, it's part of the Retail Leasing Act. So certain outgoings you can't pass on to the tenant, like land tax and property management. So you need to assess that as well, what you're buying as well to ensure you're not kind of crossing. Basically, just make sure you cross the T's and dot the I's and speak with a solicitor to find out what you're buying. 
A hundred percent, and making sure that it's on the correct lease. That blew my mind uh, when our last podcast, where Aaron said that even though it's on the wrong lease, if it's considered a retail shop, it still might should have been using a retail lease. You just wouldn't know that. You just don't know what you don't know in commercial property. And looking at that, anyone seeing a lease would think, yep, yeah, that's fine. It's not a retail lease because it doesn't say retail lease. But they didn't realize that it actually should be. It was yeah. set up incorrectly at the start. Yeah. You said something quite funny at our last team meeting, and I probably shouldn't bring this up, but like where we constantly find problems with commercials and we're all having a bit of a grumble <laughs> about, oh, we always got these problems. And you actually said this specific thing. You went, this is why people use a buyer's agent because it is really, really hard. And that, that kind of stuck with me. People come to us because it's a lot of work and it is really hard. But if you get all the ducks lined up, you can actually reap the benefits really well, much better than residential. Yeah, I think I said like, this is why we have a business because it's freaking yeah. hard. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> all right. So in terms of like e-commerce, like how do you think that's impacted the value of retail property? And I'll let both of you answer this like on your own words. Anita, like how has the online e-commerce sector impacted retail properties? Oh, it has an exponential effect. I mean, I love e-commerce businesses. No doubt it's actually obviously filled up industrial spaces, but what people don't know is it's filled up retail too. You know, I've got, like Steve knows, I've got this French bully and he's my pride and joy, but you'll notice that it's basically infiltrated the pet business, this e-commerce business, because everyone's sort of starting their own sort of pet or vet business and it's overflowed from industrial and it's actually infiltrated retail. I mean, I know this particular strip that is nearby my place, there's three pet stores in that same region and they all offer different types of services. So you just need to know the niche. There's a poodle niche and then there's a French bulldog niche and now there's like a dash hound niche. So you just don't know what you don't know and you just have to speak to, you know, Steve and Andrew, such as yourself, to know the different sort of levers to pull in this area. Is that a picture of him behind you? Yes. (laughs) 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 He's right behind me too, actually, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dog groomers actually offer a pretty good opportunity, Andrew. We bought one up on the Sunshine Coast and it's because, like, crazy people like Anita who love their pet way too much will pay an exorbitant, <laughs> they'll pay more for their dog's haircut so than, than so they true. will their own, own haircut. So like they're just turning <laughs> over like $200 everybody half an hour. Yeah, the pet industry is a, a really strong industry because people do care so much about their pets. It's like their child. Absolutely. He is my child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. anything, anything to do with, like, you just think of it like a kid. It, like, there's obviously the more obvious, the, the baby and kids industry, that, that will always be a very stable market. But now we're, you know, you're hitting that millennial or Z generation where they're choosing not to have kids. And then there's, like, the dinks, which is the double income, was it? No kids sort of sector i mean they're just pumping up the pets and the kids in the pets industry right now so yeah i haven't heard of that one that's funny thanks <laughs> <laughs> so steve what do you reckon about e-commerce how has it like really changed the retail space i'm going to take a little bit of it i actually agree with the need of i'm going to come from a different angle and actually say it hasn't actually affected that as much as we think it's still strong where it's kind of affected is where people buy things online they've also kind of less price driven there or more price driven there and they're spending their money. And I'm going to use a new word I've just learned as well, the dinks. Dinks go out for services as well. And like, this is the big thing. I think we spoke about this on one of the really early episodes where like my parents, we did not go out to eat. Like 
There was I wasn't even going to get a haircut, for instance. Like mum would put the bowl on your head and cut around your hair, and that was kind of that was the norm. I don't know anyone now who doesn't take their kid to a hairdresser and they go out for breakfast and get their baby chinos with them. That our treat was McDonald's when we went up to Foster on a yearly holiday. So the more the cultural more than anything, and that's what's driving it. So even though there's an e-commerce side behind laptops, people want to get away, especially with the working from home, to go to these places like the cafes and the restaurants and the local suburban kind of shops. So there's a weird expectation that that's part of life now that you deserve to have these kind of luxuries. And that's been the biggest shift to retail I've seen. Yeah, funnily enough, I actually cut my son's hair. I have oh. since he was born because it was just easier because he was a wriggler. He just cannot stay yeah. still. He had ants in his pants. And I cut my own hair just because I hate sitting in front of a mirror, like going to the hairdresser and looking at myself and them cutting my hair. So I just <laughs> I can cut my own hair. So I just cut his because it was just easier for me. And I still do to this day. He's five. Yeah, and then that's why he's got no friends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he's five, man. He, has, he can make friends like that at a park. He's got like 10 friends already. <laughs> this is good. I knew when I had a bad haircut, I'd just shave my head and just get rid of the bowl cut. <laughs> but it really is, people go out like all my friends, even barbers now, like for guys, we'll go out and spend 50 to to $100 on a haircut like once every month or two. And I don't know many people that cut their own hair now. Like that's the thing. And my friend laughed the other day because I told him I paid $120 for a beard trim and a haircut. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, yep, definitely made it. I can spend that much money now. <laughs> Your beard buddy made of gold or something, mate. <laughs> she need a trim right now. <laughs> yeah, another industry that's actually sort of doing quite well is the beauty sort of LASIK surgery industry. So the skin, it was basically recession-proof. Like during the pandemic, even though we're all in lockdown, you know, you see headlines where you've got your girlfriends or your wives sort of trying to book in like hair or uh, beauty parlor appointments just so that they can get their laser treatment in. Eyebrows, that sort of thing, you know, it takes every month. I know people that just go monthly or even weekly to do nails, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, as you know, Anita, um, we've actually got a client at the moment. We're looking for a premise for their business for that, for skincare, Botox at the moment. Oh, and, yeah. and this is probably a good point, Andrew, is they're looking for an office space and they can't find it where they need to be. So that's one of the points. Like, even though the big data shows, if you know what you're doing, there's some really tightly held areas. Like, she's engaged a buyer's agent because it's so hard to find somewhere at the moment. Yeah, 100%. And it really comes down to the industry of the tenant as well. That's the real main part as well. I think that's become way more important. So in terms of, like, office space, Steve, can you just talk about, like, the trends that you're seeing in terms of demand and occupancy rates and things like that? Yeah, so the big data actually shows that the large floor spaces aren't as in much demand. Their vacancy rates increase, but the smaller ones are. And we've, well, I think we went through this on an earlier podcast as well. It's people are downsizing or there's less days in the office per week. So there's not enough space. So no longer do you need the whole floor in the CBD. They're doing the, it's called the hub and spoke model. Basically, they have like yeah. a little office in the city, then some smaller ones for people to kind of work from. So focusing on the smaller ones, there's more opportunity there. Don't go out and buy like, in a CBD where there's 20-story towers, that kind of middle ring and outer ring where there's just little two- to four-story office towers, that's going to keep the demand. Because as we know, price growth and rental growth comes from supply and demand. So if they're not building any more stock and the population's growing, that's a good indicator that you're going to keep tenants long-term. People always need an office. Like, I can't work from home five days a week. And that's probably why the last couple of years I've worked from 15 different countries because I get sick of staring out the same window all day, every day. So we'll go into the office one day a week. And that's why we're we're renting a share office at the moment. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, I really like exactly like I agree with you totally. Basically, what I do in CP Data is we collect the actual working from home jobs to count every single month. And the amount of money you can make from home is absolutely ridiculous now. Like it's not uncommon to make either $100,000 by just being at your home. Like going back like 10 years, that would have been almost impossible unless you add your own business. But even like in November, there was 13,278 jobs listed for working from home. That's a lot of jobs. That actually reflects 7.61% of all jobs Australia-wide were working from home jobs. Like that's unbelievable. That's climbing as well. So like imagine yeah. that's on the upward trend. And, and that's most people don't want to do five days a week. And I know some people disagree that listen to this podcast, but most middle-aged people, I'm going to call myself middle-aged in that kind of middle ring, don't want to be in five days a week. I think it's quite hard on the younger generation because I learned, like when I was an engineer, I learned exponentially the first five years because I was in the office constantly harassing people. So I think they've got a bit of a harder time. But the people that already have a qualification, they just they don't want to do five days a week, nine to five. A hundred percent. Now what you actually find is that when you start a new job, they're asking how many days can I work from home? That's part yeah. of the criteria now. Unless we go back to not wanting to have lifestyle, we, we don't want to work from home. We want to drive into the CBD every single day and sit in an office tower. Like these offices in the CBD are going to remain vacant and lose value for a very long time. Yeah, but the thing is, developers aren't idiots as well. And this is why when you think long term, so yes, like vacancy rates, as I mentioned before, and like the CBDs, we're talking 15, 70% in some of the capitals. The developers aren't going to go, oh, I know what we need. Let's build a 20-story office tower next door, like because they're not going to get the sales. So that'll actually stop. So it just means for the next five, 10 years, we'll be in a recovery phase. But like I said, if you can pick the right one in the right location and get a much better yield to take on the risk, you'll actually end up better off long term. So but again, a lot of people aren't buying like, I don't recommend going out and buying a little office in a huge office town, the CBD. Go for that kind of inner ring one where you actually know and where real people live. And it comes down to the industry as well, which I'll actually get Anita to have a chat about. So in terms of like office properties right now, which ones are better investments? Ones that are smaller or ones that are larger office space? And what industries would you recommend as a tenancy that you'd want to be buying into? Yeah, I think generally the smaller offices are probably a lot more attractive to your everyday investor, but it really just depends on, yet again, the area and the demand on what type of tenants are actually filling up those spaces. So I would say the more future-proof, solid type of tenants would be your doctors, your lawyers, your allied health professionals, and they would obviously turn it into an office or a clinic. And I think that obviously Cairo's physios, they they sort of go towards the more smaller offices. But I have sold some ones that are slightly bigger. That's because of the demand of lawyers and accountants. They just start out as a one-man band and then they suddenly, if businesses are doing very well and they're a little bit more established, they suddenly turn from one man to like 5, 10, 20 and they'll need the space. And those more traditional type of jobs like lawyers and accountants you know, so to say, guys, they're not going to be really staying at home. Uh, they're probably more wanting that interaction at work. The focus is now, it appears that what's happened is that the local suburb type of offices do well. But I do agree with you, Andrew and Steve, that say the CBD type of offices, I, I think it's going to be hard to maintain. Yeah, this is probably a bit too much like private information, but like we've got about 15 staff and when we rent a share office in the city, it costs about $1,400 for the day. 
to rent that out. So all of a sudden, as me as a business owner, I start looking, I go, okay, do I get kind of that inner ring office and go out and actually buy like a $1.3 million office space that would actually give me like a 7 8% yield if I was to rent it out and just rent that myself? Because you'd only have to actually go there one and a half times a week on average, and I'm actually better off owning the asset then as opposed to putting it in someone else's pocket. And that's probably a conversation to have for a lot of business owners as well. Yeah, we could look at potentially buying a, an office somewhere and then having a, a dual tenancy so someone else is actually paying the rent and we can use it whenever we want. Yeah, I think the really hot type of offices are actually right next to the courts. So anywhere near courts, barristers, lawyers, they definitely rent it up. You'll have no problems with vacancy because they always need a site where they look at briefings and interviewing their witnesses and then they prepare and they go straight to court. Like anywhere between 200 to 500 metres walk, that's a good area for officers. It's funny you say that, Anita. My best friend is a, a litigator and he took me to his office a couple of weeks ago and he was like, this is where this thing was signed. And he had the whole bloody life story of that office tower and all the things they've done. And I'm like, it's an office They're space. Very proud. <laughs> he literally was so proud of the office space where I'm just like, what are the yeah. numbers like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my dad, you know, he's still trying to get me into going back to law. He was trying to say, maybe I'll help invest in an office around the courts. I'm happy being a buyer's agent. <laughs> it, it is funny. He's the only person I know who actually wants to be in the office five days a week. So it's funny you said that. So shout out to Anne. Go home, relax, enjoy time. but some of the office space that i really like as well and it can be also to be classed as retail depending on like how it's all set up but it's your dentist your doctors stuff like that was a monster fit out literally like 300 400 you know fit out that particular tenant isn't walking away from that uh you know that property anytime soon and they usually have longer leases basically just to accommodate that large investment that they put into the property as well yeah, you've actually raised a good point. One of the retails I really like is where you actually have the shop front retail where they have an office space tenant. And a lot of the times I actually don't like the office space tenant. So it's actually like an accounting or a convincing firm or something where you're like, I don't think they're going to be there long term. But the value add potential for a glass front retail is huge because you might get the medical mm. or just something a bit more tangible and long term you'll be all right. So sometimes there's opportunities there as well. Yeah, I was speaking to a client the other day and um, I was telling him what we've been investing in, you know, industrial and retail, what I like, what we've been doing. And I said, you know, we've been doing a little bit of office as well, like a doctor's or a dental practice. And he was actually a doctor. And he's like, oh, really? Like you still invest in like office and stuff? I'm like, yeah, well, how much like fit out did you spend on your property, your practice in Wollongong? And he's like, oh, we spent about 300000 And I'm like, yeah, are you ever going to walk away from that property? He's like, no. Nah. I'm like, well, there you go. That's a really good like buying because you're not going to walk away. Why would any other doctor walk away from their practice and their investment into the fit out? Yeah, they're, they're typically the type of business that doesn't shut down as well, not in regards to like they might not making money, but even if they start losing money, they sell it on to a new fresh doctor. They don't just yeah. kind of close up shop because like you said, the fit out is way too expensive to just give up and then someone takes over the business and keeps it going that way. Yeah, totally. So like in terms of like the location, the location factor, like when you're considering an office or retail investment, like how important is the location? 
I think the best sort of combination would be if you see a bit of industrial activity that supports that business and a bit of retail hub, you know, those sorts of pockets are probably hotspots for retail and offices and all these services basically support each other. And then you've got your main streets. Those are great for like walk-ins and doing laser skin surgeries and allied health professionals, that sort of thing. And I think, like I said, my favorite type of retail showroom or office type of settings is those little, I don't know what it's called, Steve, but it's like those hubs where there's like 10 or 6 or 10 sort of shops and it's your local sort of retail sort of IGA and liquor land and bakery and it has everything. You just go in, get a haircut, go and get a meat pie or a coffee and then go into Woolies. That, those sorts of little hubs, they're really good. They never have any issues with in terms I, of vacancies. I live on the northern beaches of Sydney and I don't leave because of that because I can walk to the local yeah. hub. Everything I need is here. It's got a rock climbing gym. It's got the little IGA. It's got um, a hairdresser. Like it's got like my part. We got a massage last weekend. It's got everything there. And like you said, they're never going to die. But you've actually touched on a really good point, which I want to point out to people is factories, for instance, are the biggest driver for retail and jobs. So one one of the stats I read the other week is for every factory worker job there is. So if they introduce a new factory, five other industry jobs are created per factory worker's job. So if a new factory brings in 2,000 people for those jobs, there's actually 10,000 jobs become available because to support that area, you need the cafes and the restaurants and the nurses and the school teachers. But that that one kind of blew my mind. It's five times. One industrial job causes five retail jobs, which is really powerful. One of the main statistics I look for when I'm looking for location, and it's just like a high level, like just trying to find a location, is the vacancy rate. What statistic do you guys like to like really check first in a market to see if it's a good market to kind of keep on going with that, you know, researching that property? The vacancy rate for retail, Andrew, especially the suburban ones that we're talking about, it's not as accurate as you think, because like Anita said, say we buy in a little retail hub and there's 10 tenants and there hasn't been a vacancy for three or four years. And four years ago, one went vacant and it was vacant for a year. Would you safely say that the vacancy rate is a year? Because what happens if the population's grown in the area? Then it's actually tighter. So this is the hard thing. There's a little bit less unknown. And yes, you can go to like a similar suburban area nearby, but they've got a completely different vibe. Like where you are in Sydney's West Andrew, some of the areas are hustling and bustling. And then you go to the next little suburban strip and there's no one there. So it is a little bit more of a black art with the vacancy rates, but this is where doing the due diligence actually counts. So trying to like find any history you can from the last 10, 15 years on CoreLogic, talk to town planners and even talk to property managers because they'll tell you about how much inquiries they have. And then the other bigger, this is a secret one, talk to the tenants in the complex. You don't just have to talk to the tenant that you're buying. You can actually talk to all the other tenants and find out how their business is doing. Have they ever been offered to take up the premises and try to get a good, clear picture. But like I said before, you're not just buying it for the next five years. At some point, you're going to lose your tenant. Like I don't meet many investors that have their tenant for 50 years. So look at it with that long-term mindset and then prepare for any expected vacancy, which is a little bit longer than industrial. But then, like we mentioned, we're getting a much higher yield at the moment. So we're actually mitigating the risk for the rent. Yeah, well, this is exactly why I created CP Data because it is a black art finding the vacancy rate. So like say, for instance, If I find a property and it's somewhere in Australia where I don't know the market very well, 
I'll just quickly jump on the CP data and check what the vacancy for that particular location would be. And all that's saying to me is, yeah, it's not a bad vacancy. Continue, keep going, keep looking at the property. Or if it's a huge bad vacancy, I'll be like, okay, well, I don't really want to put the effort into looking at that property anymore. Well, I've actually opened up CP data and I've got the list of like best retail like locations that have the lowest vacancy and I'll share that later. But it's not like the be all and end all. And obviously it's just data. Um, so it can be skewed slightly sometimes. It's not always 100% correct. So it's take everything with a grain of salt, but it just points you in the right direction. So it just says, yes, you're on the right track. Keep going or no, just, you know, give up. Yeah. We, we actually bought a retail for a client where we actually, when we phoned the tenant, they actually said they were leaving and we still bought the property because everything else stacked up so nicely and it was such a yeah. tightly held retail, we actually progressed with it. Yeah, that's great. So in terms of like key indicators for like a retail property or an office property being low risk investment in today's market, what are you looking for? And can you tell me like some of the really good buys? I've seen a couple of great buys that um, we've made at Polisi Property in the last couple of months. Can you share a couple of those with me and maybe some um, more like top level, high level view of like locations as well? Yeah, so some of the retail great finds that we found is funnily enough is in Canberra, an area that a lot of people probably would sort of look over. I love Canberra. That's probably one mm. of my main areas that I look for, mainly because if it's below 1.8 million threshold, it's just such a great for those entry-level investors that because that you don't have to pay stamp duty. And in Canberra, commercial property, you don't have to pay land tax too. So that's two savings already in terms of um, investing in uh, the Canberra region. And some of the yields are actually quite good too, sitting around 5.8 to 6.5%, depending on how long the lease is and in terms of the actual tenant itself. So a lot of the places that we've bought, Allied Health, groceries, stores, your Pilates and BJJ gyms, that's some of the, uh, I guess, types of tenants. Their leases, are, for whatever reason, are extra long, at minimum five plus five years or a couple of them are seven plus seven years. So very solid returns too. In Queensland, similarly, we focus on main streets, retail shops that's close to train stations and some of the tenancy types would probably be hairdressers, vets, specialist types of gyms, mixed martial arts. BJJ gyms are awesome because it, I know a friend of mine that he's all about mixed martial arts and he started his business a few years ago with just one gym. Within two years, it grew to three gyms. And you just have to know the market because some of these clients, they would say, oh, BJJ, they don't really put too much fit-up works. It's just mats. But that's actually a really good thing because what happens in these commercial leases is that you don't have to bother with the fit-up works. It's all tenants pay all, but also... It's just easier when different tenants move in and out of that space. Some of the other areas in New South Wales, which Steve touched on, is this retail restaurant cafe that we bought in an industrial complex. So it's somehow categorized as retail, but it's because it's serving that industrial sort of hub. It's sort of like got this sort of showroom retail it sort of effect to it. We've bought a lot of um, coastal properties I've noticed as well and that's like even in Queensland and even New South Wales we're buying a lot of like northern beaches. We bought a whole shopping centre on the central yeah. coast. We got a, a big one recently which is an office space in French's Forest in um, northern beaches as well. That was a 27 mil one but a 7% net yield which is just ridiculous. You compare that to like an industrial in the same yeah. area that's 4%. 
So like I mentioned before, even if it's vacant 40% of the time, you're still in front with the cash flow. Yeah, 100%. That's an unbelievable return. And that's probably like some wiggle room to add a bit of value to that property as well. Because a lot of these properties, they're not 100% utilized. There's always a little bit of a, like a an extra closet or an extra space where you possibly could, you know, one of the other tenants might need some more storage. So it could be another couple of hundred couple of dollars each week for storage space in that unit, somewhere like that. So yeah, it had some good versatility as well because it was 15 tenants and it still had some industrial roller doors down the bottom. So we could still get a mix between that kind of industrial and office, but it's primarily office, but the yield is the big thing. Like, this is the whole point of this podcast is there's some big opportunities in the market for office and retail at the moment. Yeah, 100%. Stay up to date with all the hints, tips and tricks in commercial property by following Polisi Property on Facebook. Go to Polisi Property, hit that follow button and never miss a beat with Polisi Property. So Anita, you actually, you mentioned that properties near a train station are very, very good. And I imagine that's because of the foot traffic. When you said that, I remember something that Simon Presley actually said, because there's a misconception about like uh, for residential property, that properties around train stations are always worth more or they're, they're like ideal. And then it's like, he would say that if that was the case, every single property close to a train station would be more like valued higher and there'd be a ring around it. But can you just explain why properties near a train station for commercial property is a really big asset? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It just goes back to those foundations that we talk about. The, the, the one, it's the accessibility and the foot traffic, but also it's your sort of your main sort of retail hub when it's maximum amount of foot traffic from the train, but then there's also people, there's always some sort of car park around that train mm. station area too. And so there's people parking to go to the city to jump on the train, that sort of thing. But then you'll notice that that parameter, it's always your your basic sort of foundation to retail shops that um, most people need, such as, you know, your chicken shop, your fish shop, your hairdresser, your nail salon, all your sort of your basic, the grocery store, they're all sort of, around that train station mark. It also extends your operating hours. Whereas if you go to like the little suburban one that doesn't have a retail, they're generally like a nine to five or nine to five thirty-ish one. But you find most train station ones kind of operating that 7 a.m. to the 7 p.m. And like you said, when you get home from work, they go past the chicken shop and they get takeaway. So it just adds another level of service and time that people can actually attend the premises. It's just really interesting how like, one perception can be for residential that it makes it better, but you didn't. You, know, you don't hear that about commercial property. You don't hear people saying, "I'll oh, get it near a train station because it's like got more foot traffic." It just that's the first time I've actually heard anyone speak about train stations being a location for where you should find retail property. Yeah, I've heard Anita say before. What is it? You say something like "follow the money" as well. So if there's like the Bunnings and things like that going there, that's oh, yeah. a good indicator for the demand as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the first thing I see because with Bunnings and McDonald's, those big institutions, they have a huge research team. They would have done all the numbers and made sure that those areas are going to thrive. And in actual fact, that Woolies, I know that they're actually dictating the market. They're mm. moving from your big supermarket spaces down to the boutique metro Woolies type of shops. So I don't know if you notice your local sort of Woolies have suddenly gone smaller because the customer's appetite has changed now, especially since the pandemic. Most people are shopping for organic foods or they want things to be a lot more natural. They want more options that are a little bit off the traditional route. 
um, yeah, you still have your bread and milk and all that, but they want oat milk or almond milk, you know. <laughs> like, And so what I understand is that Woolies in the next five, ten years, they're going to start building residential complexes and they're going to pop themselves underneath those complexes. So they're starting to be developers now. And then obviously they'll have other little commercial shops that are free to support the community. And so if you see one of those or myself, I'll be getting in on them. They can target their stock levels to the demographic that they're going to as well. So like I said, I'm in a fairly affluent area, the Northern Beaches. Like you said, they've got really eco-friendly stuff. You can actually go fill up your shampoo bottle from their dispenser so you're not wasting plastic. (laughs) Whereas I didn't see that when I grew up in Sydney's West. And when I go out there, they don't have that. It is very price-driven only. So they can actually tailor the types of shopping centres based on the people coming through. Yeah, I've actually spoken to investors that only ever invest where there is a McDonald's. If McDonald's are there, they're happy to invest there, but they will not invest where there's McDonald's already doesn't have a location like close to their property. Just on that as well, we bought a property a little while ago, Steve, wasn't it a cinema? And we found out Ahoyts was going to be tenanting it in a few weeks or something. Tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah, so, so we were actually looking at a cinema. It was a boutique kind of owned one. And we actually found no one was looking at it because they were actually shutting down. And like basically business was really struggling. And then part of our DD team actually researched and found that actually what happened, Hoyts had actually bought it and they were revamping it. And there was a little restaurant right next door to it. So we bought that. And then literally within three months, Hoyts had taken over and the foot traffic went through the roof. And that'll always have a business because people are always going to eat food before they go see their movie. So that's a perfect location for foot traffic. Yeah, yeah. so we bought the restaurant next to it and you could imagine the amount of foot traffic that a Hoyts will bring. For that investor that we bought it for, the tenant that he put in there, you may have been able to charge like a rate per square meter that was fair to the market, but once Hoyts moved in there, that rate per square meter would have gone through the roof. Surely the next market review for the shops around that Hoyts would have absolutely blown up. Yeah. So th- this is part of the commercial thing, but... This is also the negative is commercial is you have to do all this work. It's not just like, yeah. a, oh, let, let's buy a house near a, near a train station. Like there actually is a lot more involved. And this is where most people get unstuck because it's so broad what you can find. Like just a point of note, like a cinema is a retail, but it's not a simple retail to go out and buy. Like it is, it is very difficult. Banks even look at it differently as well. They consider it a special type of asset. And you have to have a lower LVR because they are higher risk and things like that. So there's just so many moving parts with this. Yeah, 100%. I think my actual next question was around due diligence, but it was basically how do investors approach due diligence with retail property and office space? But it's just like, you just answered it then. It's just, you need to check everything. You don't know what you don't know, unfortunately. And that's why there's buyer's agency around there. Like it's a very, very difficult task. That's that's also why there's more value-add opportunity. And I know you love value-add, Andrew, like, Industrial, there's not that much to do. Like if you get a freestanding one, literally all you can really do is split up the tenancies into smaller ones, try to find something that's under rented or put a mezzanine area. That's pretty much it. You can do some solar panels and stuff like that. Retail, you can do all that, but you can just changing the tenant completely changes the value of the property. The tenant next door changing changes the value of the property. Then you've got all the renovation type ones as well. And then you get a medical and they fit it out like, there is way more to be gained in retail. But again, you have to know what you're doing. 100%. All right. So we touched on a little bit before, but let's move on to some hotspots and some awesome deals that we've purchased for some of our investors recently in the uh, retail and office uh, sector. Who wants to take it, Steve or Anita? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take. I'll probably talk a bit about some of the deals and where we see things moving forward in 2024. So let's start with New South Wales. As I mentioned before, we bought this nice um, retail cafe shop that kind of funnily looks like an industrial unit. So if the buyer wanted to convert it back into an industrial, it can be easily done. But it sits in this industrial complex, which I talk about. So that has that flexibility in turning into different, renting it out to different type of tenants. So that complex is in Northern Beaches. So we're really targeting Northern Beaches. It's sort of close to the beach, obviously. It has great accessibility to the city still, but it's still that, you know, targeting that local market, I guess. They can't build it out as well. And that's a good point is when you're buying something kind of like limited by ocean and then they're building lots of residential, as long as they're not building competing retail spirit, you've got that demand and people are always going to live near the beach. So that's that long-term mindset. It's always going to increase the value as the land increases. Same as the residential. If the residential market grows, so does yours because people don't sit there in their $7 million house and expect their retail shop to rent for $20,000 a year. You get that. And we are, we're, we're getting good yields. We're getting kind of like 55 to 6.5%. I mentioned before, we got the 7% yielding one in French's Forest. One of my favorite purchases, we actually bought up in Arana. We bought a little suburban strip with six shops for 2.2 mil, which is around a 6% yield. Funnily enough, it was actually for a doctor who was waiting for one of the tenants to leave. As soon as their lease finishes, he's actually going to kick him out and he's going to move his own business into it. So that was for him. But I liked it without that because it was fully tenanted and you're getting a 6% yield for a whole strip of shops for 2.2 mil. So that was a really good one for me. It's a really good return. I mean, I think it surprises some people because there are some investors that are focusing in industrial, and but they want to buy in New South Wales. But what the return is about 3 to 4% really for industrial. But then when you flip it to retail, they're averaging around that 6 to 7% mark if you know where to buy. And, and as I said, Northern Beaches, is um, we've got some good deals um, in the last few months. Queensland, is there's heaps of opportunities there. Yet again, we've bought some, a liquor land in uh, St. Lucia. Some other areas that we target is Alex Heads, Dickey Beach, those areas um, just along the, the beach. They're, they're really good with those little retail shops about Slacks Creek. Marari, those areas next to the airport, they do very well too. And yet again, look out for properties that have that sort of industrial retail hub. So if you want to be extra, extra safe, because as Steve mentioned, it just supports that community again in terms of business. Yeah, and mirroring what we said before, and that's like a lot of the East Coast, we buy quite a lot of retail on the coast. So like the Sunshine Coast is a really good spot. Gold Coast, even down at Byron, Tweed heads, any of those areas where population's growing, but they're not building any more retail, you can actually do really, really well. Like, and this is this is the main thing. If you buy a good one, so like we bought what's one we bought recently? Oh, we bought a Malula bar. We bought a guide dogs training center, which is a retail shop. And they actually had to break the lease. So we got it on a five by five year lease. And I think about three years into it, they had to change and break the lease. We found someone within a month. So like someone moved in. So even though they were going to pay out the lease, they asked for an early break clause where basically they cover the advertising and the time it takes you to get a new tenant. It was within a month. So a tightly held area, vacancy, you can mitigate 90% of the risk. 100%. And you've got a cafe, Steve, don't you, that you are just changed over tenancy, right? Yeah. So same thing, tightly held area. My, my cafe is across like this perfect for Anita. It's about 200 meters from a train station. And it's also <laughs> across from a new medical precinct. So it's a freestanding cafe. 
And I thought when I lose it, I'm definitely going to get like a hairdresser or like a flower shop or something that supports the hospital. But yeah, unfortunately, I got an e-cigarette company, but actually I'm against <laughs> smoking. But the rent I was getting prior to that was about, what, 25 grand? They're paying 35 grand. So it was actually a really good kind of like capital growth boost for it as well. But again, that was vacant for, what, two months? So what's the market cap rate there, Steve, you reckon? My one's a bit different because it's a freestanding one, not right on the main road because it's got development potential. But generally where it is, it's kind of 6 to 7% net for, for most retail. Mine's a bit okay. different as well because I've mentioned on other podcasts like, it's got like a car spot. It's got 10 car spots. I can build up to 42 meters. So mine's a bit more of a kooky one. But at the moment, I'm getting like, I bought that, what, five years ago now. I think I'm up to about a 9% net yield now. So just on that $10,000 that you added, right? So if you were to buy, uh, sell that today on a seven cap, being conservative, you said it was mm-hmm. six or a seven, you've actually added $142,857 to the value of your property because you added $10,000 of income to the actual property. That's yeah, crazy. Exactly. Like, yeah. And I've yeah. done nothing. And the, the new tenant completely fitted out the shop, painted the building, made it look yeah. all nice again. So like, and again, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like this is this because we know what we're doing and we get a lot of like clients will sign up and they'll go, Oh, Anita, what about this one? And they send us the first thing they find online. That's 9%. And straight away where it's like, no, don't touch that. It's a bad area or it's a flood zone or this and that. Like you do have to do the checks. Yeah. And you have to pick your spots too as well like we're talking about retail like it's the bee's knees we literally just the, the amount of retail that we throw in the bin is huge like it's a very specific thing we're looking for and it, even more specific with office so please don't go out and just like buy anything you do have to be careful and know what you're doing first all right so where do we want to go to now guys probably another hot spot andrew is over in wa we're buying quite a lot in perth in retail as well and like um nita mentioned before not in perth cbd like that's that's generally a really tough market but that inner to outer ring even some of the like suburban top ones so down in like rockingham and areas like that there's some really good opportunities we've bought things like post office i think we got Liquorland there as well we've got another iga there we actually just bought an eight and a half million dollar shopping center in um, Safety Bay, and that had I think what was yep. it, eight or nine eight or nine tenants with an IGA as a base tenant, fully tenanted, seven percent net yield. So there's some really good opportunities if you actually just look in those suburban areas. Yeah, I think um, we just actually went unconditional on a property, a two point five million dollar neighborhood retail center in Rockingham. This was an absolute ripper deal. I think on face values, we got this property off market. On face value, it's a 6.6% return and the rents were actually quite low for the actual market as well. And it was an IGA, a pizza shop, a hairdresser, a hair salon, you know, nail salon. I think there was a Chinese takeaway. It was literally textbook exactly what we were talking about with neighborhood retail, like destination neighborhood retail in a thick, dense, populated area with residential houses all around it. Just an absolute top investment. Adrian actually rang me and told me about this and he's like, do we have anyone for this? I'm like, I'm calling people right now. This is a sick deal. I'd buy this right now. Yeah, Andrew, we've got a 6.6% net return on that as well, which is for the risk that you've got on such low kind of, because you've got good tenants, the IGA and the base, like you, you can't get a lower risk one. I actually argue that it's lower risk than industrial. Yeah, well, that particular property, because it had so many different tenancies and they were all on one title, but it was set up to actually be strata titled. So you had the value add strategy of just splitting it up to make it more accessible for different people to buy as a lower like value investment, which actually makes the property actually have 
a total higher value because now you can actually piece it off if you wanted to. Yeah. We're getting so many clients now where they, they sign up with us expecting like an industrial and that's probably because me and you have been talking it up so much. And then we find these cracker deals and we actually just call them and say, hey, look, I know we wanted industrial, but have a look at this. Like I need to attest to, like 90% of people do come around and go, okay, there's some value here. Yeah, 100%. Anita, tell me about that deal in Canberra we just got for um, one of our clients. That was an absolute ripper deal. Uh, was it like a new build with a 10-year lease or something? Yeah, so that one basically, because we do have that relationship with the sales agents, and this is the, I guess, the added benefit if you come to work with buyers agents, is that we talk to these guys every day, like probably three times a day. They just approached me and said, Anita, do you have any buyers for this? And it was basically, I think it was 10 plus 10 years lease, and it was rented out as a office for a mortgage broker. And the return was about 6% yield, which is pretty solid for such a long lease. And the client was just super stoked. We just bagged that like it just came off the market straight to us. And then within a day, our buyer just got it. So these are the type of deals that you'll be seeing. And especially it's, it's great with this Canberra market. As I said, it's no stamp duty, no land tax. If you bought a $1.9 million property in Canberra, there's still flexibility in terms of tax rebates because like say if you bought one9 you'll probably be charged about 100k in terms of stat duty, but then you can write it off actually in the Canberra market, which is a very unique situation. Yeah, 100%. All right, so trying to tie it all together, Andrew, I know you've got for the listeners some CP data about the kind of some good spots to have a look at. So do you want to maybe share some of that information? Yeah, sure. What we'll do is I'll share my screen and we'll see if we can just go through some quick locations with the best vacancy. So basically what this is, is in CP data, I have a, a spreadsheet filter mode and I can pretty much like filter out all of the noise and, and figure out exactly what sector um, I want to look at. So you can filter it through sectors. So I can just go to the retail sector and then all I do is just click on the vacancy and I can see here that the actual locations with the lowest vacancy in Australia, according to CP data, like Barrel is a very good location. It's 2.6% vacancy. Katoomba is also a good location. And this is, take this all with a grain of salt. You still got to go do the actual research, checking that the actual properties there on the main part of the, the actual strip and stuff. So this is just data. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. So, so my brother lives in Barrel and every time I actually visit him, I always look at the retail strip and there is zero vacancies there. Like you walk around, there's not. Yeah, and then yeah. flowing onto that, you've just mentioned Katoomba. I actually lived in Katoomba. We bought a house there during lockdown because we didn't want to be kind of cooped up in an apartment. And again, the Blue Mountains, you walk down the main strip of the Blue Mountains of Katoomba, like there's huge amounts of retail. We're talking like 100 yeah. plus retail shops down the main strip. There's no vacancies. Like they're all really tightly held. Yeah, yeah. You can see like, and that can also be skewed as in like how many are actually for sale so or how many are actually for lease. Like these could also be vacant, but they're not leasing them because they don't want to take a lower like rate per square meter. This is just data. This is basically just understanding, should I keep going looking into that market? But there are nuances to each market like that. So like Tweed Heads, that's always going to be a winner. I think Steve and I spoke about that in the industrial as one of the best industrial places as well. Ballin has got 4.5% vacancy. Singleton is a 5.1% vacancy, which Singleton's a little bit close to the mining industry, but still has some good opportunities. Southern Highlands, Blue Mountains, like a 6.5%. Caloundra is a very, I really like Caloundra actually, not just because of the commercial property there, but I'd love to live there for a little while right next to the beach. 
uh, to top spot as well. Maitland's been really good for a long time in the residential space and commercial space, but now we're creeping up into like the sevens, you know, 7.4% and up. And like Bendigo's been very good. Grafton's been very good, 7.5%. Anything more than like an eight, I'd probably be like just targeting the first five of this list, which was Barrel, Katoomba, Tweedheads, and Ballina. They all have sub 5% vacancy and on the, the retail side. And then on the office side, we'll just have a look at that. Look, Katoomba is the first one right there as well, Steve. What do you reckon of that? Yeah, I love Katoomba. I did really well there. We bought a house there for 520 grand, what, three years ago? And that's valued about 850 now. And it was just the value. And like, if you look at the big macro data, even for the residential, it was all strong. But what I'm taking away from this list, Andrew, is, and this is sort of what we've alluded to in the podcast, you don't have to buy in a CBD. You can go regional and have still really tight vacancies. 100%. And like Katoomba in office has 2.8% vacancy. Like that's a seriously low vacancy. There's just not much on the market. Like there's four for lease and there's three for sale. This also comes down to the amount of properties available in the market as well. So there might like only be like a handful of office in Katoomba. You know what I mean? So like the amount of office space in Katoomba compared to the amount of office space in like a Sydney, it's like a drop in the ocean. You know what I mean? So going into tighter markets like that, even though they're smaller markets, can actually be lower risk than going into a big city market like Sydney. So like the next one on the list is Mildura. That's 3.4% vacancy. Caloundra is also on the list, 3.8% vacancy. Ballina is 4.3% vacancy. Barrels uh, up there again, 5.2% vacancy. Bustleton, Highlands, Bendigo, Maitland. These are actually some of the same locations as the retail sector. So that's definitely not by mistake. It's just these locations have a lot tighter amounts of property there. And there's just not a lot for lease. There's not a lot for sale. And if I was buying into the retail sector right now, these would be the locations that I would be targeting to minimize my risk of you know prolonged vacancy because that is the biggest risk in commercial property. The first risk is prolonged vacancy. The second risk is single tenancy risk. If you can mitigate both of those, you are definitely winning. That is definitely a good way to do it. One of the things I'm seeing is most of these areas are tree change and sea change locations. Yeah. And like you said, areas where people want to live. Like I can see like Port Macquarie's on the list, Tweed Heads, like Barrels, really, you know, Katoomba, Blue Mountains. Yeah. Like they're all areas where people actively choose to live and they didn't just kind of fall into there because their parents are there. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, 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 and this all is working back into the working from home movement. Like people actually want to move there. It's better lifestyle. They can work from home. They can still get big city money, but they can do yeah. it in the, the nice, like close to the coast, close to like being out in a farm. If you like that kind of stuff, it all comes down to lifestyle, which is, I just don't foresee us going back to not wanting lifestyle. It's one of those things that I just don't think we can go back now from actually saying, we want to drive into the city. We want to work in an office tower. It just won't change. The Blue Mountains is an interesting one as well because I actually found like when we were living there, we still went into the city twice a week because it's an hour yeah. and 20 on a train. Yeah. However, most people we met living there actually work in Parramatta. They didn't want to live in Parramatta. They actually wanted the tree change. And yeah. it's a 20, 30-minute train drive, a train ride to, to Parramatta. So all of Western Sydney that are able to live there and still have an employment. Yeah, that's right. So like these are places that are just outside big cities. So like, yeah. as you said, Blue Mountains, Katoomba, even like it's not on here, but like Wollongong. Um, Wollongong is still a very good place to buy as well because you can still get to Sydney um, quite easily on the train. 
those are the types of things that you need to just understand, look at, see how the actual traffic flow works. Bendigo has been a very, very big hotspot for residential and commercial for a very long time. That's on the list. That's 6.4% vacancy. There's just so many great markets across Australia to invest in. Just have a look around, try and find something you like. But if you are going to look into the office space, I would recommend like going into the first five of these, which is Katoomba, Mildura, Caloundra, Ballina, Barrel and Bustleton. Just have a look at those areas. Those have under 6% vacancy for office. Try and find a dental practice, a doctor, something like that. And then if you need help with it, we're more than happy to help as well. Or just choose an area and become an expert in it. And if yeah. it, like you said, if you spend a week or two and you find that, okay, this maybe this is not the area, move on then. But like, just get an idea about the numbers. 100%. So final question for the both of you, I'll ask you individually. So can you offer any advice for like first time investors looking into like into the market, into retail or office property space, you know, the do's and don'ts, just how do we do it, Steve? What are we looking for? And, and why should we do it? Yeah. So for me, the biggest one is actually just the extra work that you have to do. So if you're looking at retail, you need to look at like foot traffic and the town planning. However, I think we're literally at the bottom of the market here. So there's huge opportunities there moving forward. Whereas office space will actually, even though it's a little bit more high risk because there's high vacancies in some areas, you actually can get some data behind the trends because you can say like, okay, what's the other offices in the complex? How long are they vacant for? Then there's similar ones where retail, you can't go one street back for the same data. If there's another office tower one block away, it's somewhat comparable. So you're going to get a bit more comparables to make your decision. But for me, it's just, I say this on almost every episode, just do the actual work and you'll reap the benefits long-term. How about you, Anita? What advice do you have for first-time retail and office investors? Yeah, I think it just keep an open mind. Like I said, a lot of the clients that we get through, they're more inclined to purchase um, industrial assets and that's sort of more of the go-to. But I would say keep an open mind to retail and offices and as we talked in this podcast. And I think that retail and offices, they have a bad rap. It's because it's the most visible because you're walking down the street and if you see an empty shop, it's much more obvious. Whereas in industrial complexes, you don't see it. It's hidden away. And similarly in the data, they don't actually perform that differently, actually, if you know the hotspots, that is. So if you want to know the hotspots, if you want help in purchasing retail and offices, I would say, you know, contact us, contact the buyer's agent and get the actual data and get the actual feedback from us that's happening right now awesome fantastic guys well this has been steve polisi anita yao and andrew bean on the commercial property investing explained series thanks guys thanks andrew thank you thanks for listening to the commercial property investing explained series this show has been produced by the commercial property show network (laughs) 